In Discussion with David Gibbons is sponsored in part by Bowman Global Change. Specializing in helping companies reduce their carbon emissions, Bowman Global Change applies real science to real business practices to produce results. From designing green programs to one-on-one training to helping set up green action teams in your business, Bowman Global Change translates complex science in practical ways that everyone can understand and use. For more information or to discover how Bowman Global Change can help your organization, visit bowmanglobalchange.com. My guest today, Louis Palu, is a celebrated photojournalist with work exhibited in numerous private and public collections, both in the United States and abroad. His work produced in Afghanistan while embedded in combat conditions has been highly recognized through publications such as Afghanistan, The Fighting Season. Now back home, he is immersed in Aftermath, a project exploring the social regeneration of countries in the years following war as well as many other diverse projects. Louis Palo, welcome back again to In Discussion. It's such a pleasure to be talking to you again. Thanks for having me back, David. You have just returned once again from Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. I believe that you've been back uh, several weeks, maybe even longer. How are you feeling now you're back in America? I'm readjusting. It's a little bit of a bumpy ride when you go there for a long time. I mean, you're you're really seeing a lot of things that uh, you don't normally see, at least here in America, uh, at least to the, the level that's going on over there in Kandahar. How was it compared to your trip last year? I know that we shared a program after your first tour. What was it becoming apparent to you in your own mind, the way that you were seeing life over there, the changes, the changes in you, the mm-hmm. way that you handled this second tour? Well, I would say that I didn't mean to go back, but I was awarded a grant by the Alexia Foundation, which is a, a professional photography grant that awards documentary photographers projects on that have to do with world peace and cultural understanding. And uh, I thought, you know, it's a really unique opportunity it would be to go back and do specifically Kandahar. It really gave me the resources to do things that I normally wouldn't be able to do. I would say that to to get done what I I had proposed, I knew I was going to have to do a a long-term trip, which was six months. The security situation over there is probably at its worst that it's ever been. There have been hundreds of targeted assassinations. Uh, the IED or improvised explosive device situation, which is like giant homemade landmines and actual small anti-personnel mines, has gone beyond anything I've ever seen in all the years I've been there since I've been going in 2006. At first, I seemed to be able to be functioning well in the spring because I could go on patrol and if there was gunfire, I could handle myself in those situations. But it didn't take long after a few weeks to see that the insurgents had changed their tactics and started mining and planting bombs in the ground on all roads and paths, regardless if civilians even walked on them. After a while, it just seemed like I was like walking through minefields every day, which is actually what was happening. I really needed to start focusing on uh, taking breaks in between field trips because it was extremely stressful. I I saw a lot of guys lose their feet and legs on this trip, and a lot of children badly wounded by landmines. 
What about your photography? Was that still as important as it was on the first trip? Or were you, as a human being in yourself, beginning to look at other dynamics? Well, on, on this trip, I, uh, I wanted to do some different things. I wanted to get out more without being embedded, which for listeners who don't know what embedding is, it's a system where you apply for and are placed with uh, military units, like you're embedded with them, so you live with them and you do stuff with them. But it's limited in coverage because you're only seeing things from the point of view of the military. I wanted to get out more and be unembedded or unilateral, as some people call it, so out on my own, which was highly dangerous. I kind of had to grow a really long beard. I had to really plan everything I did. I worked with an Afghan colleague who uh, acted as uh, my guide and my translator. And uh, I wanted to do that a lot. And that was like jumping off a dive board sometimes uh, feet first, uh, where where the water seemed to keep getting lower and lower in the pool. (laughs) Because uh, you'd go out some days and there is zero protection, kidnapping or assassination, lots of suicide bombers. um, And you never know if you're out in the city, if a NATO convoy passes by and I'm out on my own, dressed locally, I'm doing my own work. Uh, the NATO convoys get attacked a lot. So if you're anywhere near a NATO convoy, uh, you would be bombed quite badly by your shrapnel or secondary collateral damage. So we always avoided anywhere where NATO was because that's where the fighting would always happen or the attacking would always happen. Having been there very recently... Mm-hmm. And having charted the the history of this, my goodness me, we could go back hundreds of years with this country. Yes. Do you see any progression or is America taking itself down a path of expanded internationalism here that could at the at the end of this be as futile as possibly it was for somebody like Winston Churchill back in the 20s? Very good question. To get the work done that I've gotten done, I've had to do a lot of reading and research and a lot of soul searching because a lot of people come to me for answers, because, including soldiers, because I go out in places and I get to see things from all different sides in all different ways. And after a while, I kind of get to know what's going on there all over town in the districts around Kandahar City. I think what we're seeing here is the ultimate test of modern societies and governments. Are we willing to help a people who are not able to run their own country, who've been overrun by people with ideas that clash with the rest of the worlds? And I, I think war is horrible. I think that I wish there was no such thing as war, but I think that the ultimate battleground between the ideas of us taking the whole world forward as equal, relatively speaking, as they can be relative to their economy, their culture, their history. Do we leave Afghanistan behind as a world, not as an American or a Canadian or whoever you are? Do we leave Afghanistan behind or do we try and fix the poverty there? Because really, it's not only about the war. Uh, I would say that this is the first time that an army has gone in military force and is trying to rebuild the country not just control Afghanistan I think this is the difference between what's going on now 
and what has happened in the future uh, in the past sorry and i think that this is a, a a key thing to understand is that it's more than just a war like past wars they're trying to nation build whether it's going to work i don't know something i can definitely say and it's not a cop out is afghanistan is the graveyard of predictions expectations uh ideas concepts it's 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 our greatest failure as a world to not fix afghanistan long ago and now we have an, another shot at it and we either keep going and try and fix it for the sake of the millions of helpless people there regardless of the insurgents and the war or we just dump them to the side and we let it happen again so i don't know if i i answered the question there but you know canada was looking to get out canada's been a big contributor in kandahar their casualty rate has been quite high and they were going to leave at the risk of the government really losing a lot of popularity and and it will they're not sticking to a combat mission but they're going back in for training and they're redeploying a thousand troops and i think that this is another government saying you know hey we'd like the war to end but we cannot just let afghanistan fall apart again i'm interested with the paradigm in which you find yourself as a photographer i'd like to ask you how you see yourself with my work i certainly don't see myself as a journalist i see myself as a social historian with these programs which i hope one day my daughter can look out with her family and see how we evolved in this changing world do you see yourself as a social historian when you're out there is that your role or do you have a greater perspective I wouldn't argue too much with that being my primary goal as a social historian. I think that if we would have had a lot more photographs from sort of the British time and I say I go back more than 100 years in Afghanistan, I think if we would have had photographs more, if we would have the kind of media coverage of World War 1 that we have now, I think the world could be a, a, a we could have maybe learned and advanced a little more in sort of how we handle things when it comes to conflict but um and sort of disagreements and extreme extremism I'm a guy who just goes out and sees things just for the the simple layman's kind of explanation and I say hey look look at what's going on here and the best way for me to show people is with still photographs and uh I want the I want my photographs to be around not just for the newspaper tomorrow because the newspaper is discarded quite quickly Uh so it's same with magazines. And I want some textbooks to be around, you know, 20, 30 years from now. And if the photos are hard to look at, then let them be hard to look at. Because if we're going to send young men and women to war, then we have to know when we're young and we grow old and potentially get into positions of power, what ends up happening to these people when we send them to war. That is a offers a good place to ask you how these men and women feel over there. they are returning here to a very fragile chaotic environment and i suspect that it may be chaotic throughout the world as we certainly see ourselves evolving into something very different now mm-hmm. they come back to an environment with few jobs uh, perhaps few opportunities but i was talking to db swinney the film actor uh-huh who i interviewed recently bluey and he has a a website called letters from hollywood and he does a jolly good job of uh, sending letters to the troops from people in hollywood to mm-hmm. encourage them 
to um, thank them for their service. I'm interested, um, and, and he shares this perspective that uh, clearly these men and women, and this certainly in my mind, are going to return with a lot of wisdom that we may not be aware of. They're going to be potential leaders in civilian society. Do they know that over there? Do you talk about these issues with them or are they really stuck in a situation in which they cannot think any way but just pure survival minute by minute? Well, I'll say this. Uh, the unit I had the most time with was I was with the, the U.S. Army's 101st Airborne Combat Aviation Brigade, specifically with their medevac unit. So I really wanted to go out with a unit that didn't do fighting that th their mission was different but I, that, that I could see the war through uh, a window that I had not seen it before and the opportunity came out to go with the medevac and I, I was so moved by watching medics run out of helicopters through minefields under fire and their whole mission was to just get the patient get them in the helicopter keep them alive till they can get them back to Canada airfield that I pretty much asked for every open block that they had available for an embed. And uh, I did, I lost count, over 50 missions. That sounds like a lot. That's really small compared to how many missions they actually all do. And I went on some special missions with them into some areas where there was a lot of the Kandahar offensive was going on. Really, when you're with a frontline unit like that, we play cards. Um, we get to know each other a little bit, but then that kind of passes. And really, uh, we do a little decompression talk after some missions because some missions are pretty hairy. I, I ran through some mined areas not knowing they were mined. You know, you're under the helicopter, it's loud, they're running at the patient, I follow the medic, I follow the medic back. So really, jobs, stuff like that back home, when you're out in the front lines, that might come up briefly here and there. But all I'm really thinking about is, one, mental stability and survival every day. And two, you know, Focusing on on staying ready for the next task, next mission. With the medevac, they're on call seven, you know, seven days a week, twenty four hours a day, uh, and and the call can come anytime, and you have no idea what you're going to, but it's always to something bad. Would you compare this campaign to Vietnam in many ways? It sounds shocking, and it sounds as if the situation is uh, becoming worse than it was even last since the last time that we talked together. Are there reflections of Vietnam at this stage? Well, I, I have to say, <clears throat> I have stuff published online, and I had stuff published in The Atlantic, lots of different magazines, and there's always an online element. And I, I, I read sort of comments from people where they're asked to post their comments. And uh, there is the Vietnam thing comes up, and I, I think that really the the only comparison I would draw between Afghanistan and Vietnam is that there were two wars that were that are very unpopular, are guerrilla styled wars, and are wars that seem like the United States being the superpower seems like or could be defeated by a smaller guerrilla army. But the wars are very, very different. The size of the war, Vietnam was a much bigger conflict in, in militarily. Really it was about the Cold War and communism. As much as this is a leftover from the Cold War, it has nothing to do with the Cold War. These are uh, opponents that the U.S. 
led NATO coalition face are, you could say, religious extremists, um, fanatics. Uh, this is what some people would call them. It's very different. The Vietnamese really wanted to just, you know, liberate the South and make Vietnam one. Like, really, all they were interested in was fighting within Vietnam. There were no hijackings and flying planes into towers in New York. And I think that this is the difference with Afghanistan is that Afghanistan has pretty much opened a worldwide campaign, whether people want to believe this or not. But with all the terrorist attacks, London, uh, Barcelona, uh, all the foil attacks all over the world, the recent ones with the FedExing from Yemen, th this really all ties in in one way or another to al-Qaeda and Afghanistan, and it's a much larger, different conflict than Vietnam, and it's very easy to just say, oh, it's like Vietnam. I'll tell you, the U.S. would love to rebuild the army there, the Afghan army, and leave. I mean, it's costing this country billions of dollars. That's really causing a problem, isn't it not? That, that now there's a lot of dissent across here, mm -hmm. given the situation with the economy, and there's no doubt about it now that it is very poor and fragile and yet many billions of dollars are being spent across there as in many other countries that we're as we're spread across the world is is that something is that a topic that comes into play when you're talking to the soldiers or is that just not something that they consider no the whole politics and all that i don't get into it with them they don't really get into it with me it comes up once in a while my local knowledge of the areas in Kandahar is quite extensive, so a lot of them would want to know a history of a town or a village or what sort of past you know Canadians or past U.S. units were doing in areas. I'm always being aware that I'm telling them stuff that's pretty much public knowledge, so I'm not giving them intelligence or helping them do their military operations. I, I have to remain neutral and objective as a journalist. But uh, uh, no, that, that stuff never really came up. I think everybody was pretty much focused on what their task was or, or in soldier talk they would say their mission my, my job is to take photographs and as much as we would get into talks about lots of different things really the economy stuff like that that, that never really came up I think there are some days where you know there'd be some massive explosion under the helicopter throw the helicopter through the air or so, you know total insanity some days and the last thing that was coming to mind was the economy all I was thinking was the feet are still in the boots, the boots are still attached to my body, and uh, I'm back, and uh, I never started smoking, but some guys who didn't, didn't smoke start smoking. I started drinking lots of coffee. So, you know, you just try and do whatever you can to cope. Go on the treadmill, run an hour. Medevac was really stressful, because you could get called at any time, so you all have a, a walkie-talkie. You know, you could be in the shower. Like, you're, you're paranoid to go do anything. You'd be in the shower, and you hear Medevac, 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 and, and you're like, you're either in the toilet or you get a hair. I know guys who had like half a haircut, you know. So medevac really was one of the greatest views sort of the front line. I have to say I've never seen so many children injured in all my years going to Afghanistan. It's almost like the Russians were mining it and all the maiming was happening with the Afghan civilians. And now really the only people using the mines not to take sides are the insurgents. How do you deal with that as an artist, as a human being, uh, as a spectator, possibly, uh, the word to use, um, although you are, you're in the thick of it? 
How do you deal with it psychologically as you proceed? And where do you get the will from to keep going despite this distraction that you see through the camera? And you, I'm sure that you see it very differently to most. Uh, you're looking at it uh, through a lens, through a different medium. Mm-hmm. How does it feel when you see these children out there? And I suppose most importantly, how do those memories resonate with you now having returned well the mind is definitely a sponge and i learned this years ago because i've covered a lot of horrible things over there the children were the hardest i've seen some pretty nasty things and really some of the medics and this is why i think i really enjoyed being with the medevac because they weren't there to go out and uh and i'm not judging soldiers marines or anyone but they weren't there to do anything but but to save people. And, I, and I, I really found that really fascinating. I really found it, uh, how can I say, um, it, it really showed me something that I'd never really seen much of there. Um, I, I'd gone out with lots of units. There's lots of fighting, firefights, and that, that's an angle that's been covered quite heavily. But I, uh, I went out, and I think some of the medics were parents. Now, the pilots don't see in the back of the helicopter. They're facing forward. So it's the medic and the crew chief, which is kind of in charge to the manager of the helicopter, you could say. And they'd be back there, and it'd just be the floor would be covered in blood, you know, body parts blown off. And we picked up some children, and we'd go to do something called FARP, which is you'd go refuel after you drop off the patients. And I have to get out of the helicopter while they're refueling for safety. You know, I just lean my head against the wall, and I just thought, you know, how much of this can I watch? And I, I had quite a capacity to see a lot. And then... Uh, you know, I was nearing September. I went on a special mission with them to one area of Kandahar, which was very violent. And uh, I think by the last day, I wanted it all to end, and it wouldn't end. It was like call after call after call. The helicopter just would not land. We just get fuel, and I couldn't get off. And it was like, you know, I don't know how many, how much more of this I can see. Like, it's terrible to see what weapons can do to people. But um, I would say, you know, I, I watched part of the uh, Ken Burns film recently and uh, the war and it, and it had some interviews some soldiers and some Marines and it talked about the medics the people who suffer most after the war and you know the medics they're there seeing the worst of the wounds patching people up seeing the worst of the worst I real I felt my limit you can just feel the stress in your head like I can't do this anymore and I got offered more days on some what would be considered very prime sort of things to cover with the medevac. And I just said, I can't do it anymore. You know, I have a few more days of going home anyway. And, you know, you have to know when to say no. And, uh, you know, editing the work is very difficult. Like, you know, it's like, hey, you have a wound and it's like picking the scab off every time you go to edit the photos. You know, obviously, you know, I'm I'm definitely traumatized by what I've seen. I'm able to uh, deal with it from over the years. I've learned a lot, you know, how to have a lot of sort of things in my heart and in my, my mind to sort of work things out. Tell you, exercising and staying off, off drinking. T- two very simple but under, under sort of estimated things. A lot of people go to the bottle. You cannot medicate with alcohol. Alcohol will just sink you deeper. And exercise. Let your mind save, let your body save your mind. I do a lot of yoga. And uh, really, you know, I remember one day, probably. I think what hit me the most, it was my birthday. And we, we got woken up really early by a call and we flew out to a place called Argandab, which is a very strategic district. It's a, like a county west of Kandahar City. 
we flew in, we landed in a blowing field, uh, enemy present kind of area, so anything could happen any time. As soon as we landed, I was about to jump out, the door opens a helicopter, I'm about to jump out, there's dust flying all over the place, and I see the soldiers running toward the helicopter frantically, heavily armed, carrying the stretcher, and I could see the guy was coming, his leg was missing, his bone was sticking out below his knee, and uh, without getting a helicopter, I just slid back into my seat, loaded him into the Black Hawk, and he, he was right at my feet, awake, he looked... 15 he was probably 19 and then they were loading an air casualty to see their casualty in feet first so we're about to take off this happens in seconds he, he tugs on my, my my pant leg and says sorry to bother you and it's like it's very loud in the helicopter rotor and everything sorry to bother you he goes can you and he points to his arm he says to a pocket he says can you get a photo out of my my pocket so i kind of fumble with the pocket pull it out and it's his fiance it's a picture of his fiance now he's very pale i'd seen a lot of guys at this point he was he was half half I didn't know he was bleeding a lot I didn't know if he was going to live and there I am in my own photo world and he says can you hold the photo for me and hold my hand and I'm thinking Jesus like this guy better not die man because he really I, 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 I was, he brought me right into his world and, and I was totally willing to be there for that I, I you know taking photos like who cares so I'm holding this guy's hand and I'm thinking you know, he kept trying to look down at his leg, and I pushed his head down. I said, "Kept looking at the say, keep looking at the photo of her, keep looking at the photo of her." And uh, we dropped him off. Uh, he was not looking very good when they dropped him off. When we went to refuel, I, I, he really, you know, I, I needed the day off after that. That was a really hard one. These, are, these, this, this is someone could be their last moments of their life. You might be the last person they see. You might be the last person they hold hands with. I mean, and here I am, a stranger, and, you know, you have to decide sometimes, I'm not a photographer, I'm a human being. And if someone needs my, if someone asks me in that situation, you have to be there. It's a very heavy experience. Do you ever have the urge to find out uh, what happened uh, to young men like this? Yes. Uh, some of them I wouldn't mind doing. You know, I, I did so much medevac. I, I would love to do a book if I ever can get around to editing all the stuff I did. Because I'm kind of taking a break from looking at those photos from now. Funny you ask because I get an email from this guy's father. Now, he survived, which, you know, with all its terribleness, sort of, you know, he's alive. He lost his leg, part of his leg below the knee. But his father said, please tell me. If any of the, if the photos get published, because I think it would be good for him to see, you know, and it's part of healing, you know, like, I think what's fantastic, what's happened with the military, you know, years ago, there's this big thing, like, don't show casualties, you know, this and that, you know, the military is really touchy about it. And now they're promoting it. And I've gone to Walter Reed Army Hospital here in Washington, D.C., which is a very big hospital for, for the injured from the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, as well as veterans. And, uh, you know, the commanders and the doctors encourage the soldiers to talk about their stories, to tell their stories. And I agree. The greatest thing that, that I do is, you know, don't hold it in. Holding it in is bad. You know, if you got to cry, you cry. And I've cried definitely my fair share out there. And I've kept a diary. Hopefully one day I'll do something with my diary. But, you know, you can't be afraid if, you know, Fear and anger are temporary emotions, and if and if you give in to those emotions, for me it would be fear and never anger. 
because of what I do in my job and my role, then that fear can manifest itself in ways that can hurt you. I was going to ask that, Louis, whether of all the human frailties, whether it's fear, betrayal, abandonment, whatever they may be, do you, when you get back uh, to stateside, have to suppress those, or as you say, do you release them? Well, if you're going to be, if they're going to get released, you have to be quite aware that they get released in a very healthy manner and they're done well. And uh, you know, like I said, the first thing that anyone who does this kind of work or is, works in these kind of environments has to pay attention to is alcohol. I think alcohol is a, a, a great privilege we have in our societies, and, and it has sort of a great social capacity to to be enjoyed, um, but. I think that in a lot of ways, uh, when you come back from a war, it's a way of drowning out your wounds. And I read Sebastian Younger's book, War, you know, while I was over there. Everybody was recommending it. and uh, It's it's about a unit in the Korangal Valley, which is up in sort of the northeast of Afghanistan, where there's a lot of combat. And I read it, and it was good. And when I was getting through it, I thought, oh, this is, you know, it's a good war book. And I got to the end. And man, it's like he shot me with a silver bullet through my eyes, like right between my eyes. And you know what he said? He said, I hope I get this right because here I am on radio. He said that perhaps the greatest wound of all is the wound that makes you miss the place that you got the wound in. That may not be word for word, but that's pretty much what he said. And I thought, wow. Now, do you refer to literature or music during your time uh, working uh, when you're in a place like Afghanistan? Yes. Music, for me, at least. And, and I, I, I mean, who doesn't have some kind of MP3 player? Uh, music, for me, is uh, very important. It's very calming. I listen to a lot of music. There's uh, one musician, uh, Eleni Karendru, uh, classical music. I must have listened to Moonlight Sonata, a million times very nice piano and then sometimes I'd listen to some sort of different sort of pop or rock music but mostly really relaxing music like that reading I could you're so bored on the front lines that I could read a million books and let me tell you that it's very appreciated all the civilians and a lot of civilians do send books to the soldiers on the front lines but they're all romance novels and this is a joke that we all have on the front lines I'm not going to mention, I'm not going to pick on any one particular author, but there's a few really popular ones. I wish they would send like Moby Dick or some, you know, some really good sort of classics because I was dying up there reading about romance novels in a place where you can't be romantically involved with anybody. <laughs> that, that's kind of a funny joke because, you know, fraternization, no hand-holding, even if you're married, you're not allowed to fraternize at all when you're deployed or for journalists either. And here I am getting romance no books of romance novels. It's like torture. I wish they'd send like uh, we, we don't really need war books, but you know, I don't know. Send Catcher in the Rye. Send some classics. Send some modern books. Some people send some pretty good books actually, but it's like ninety-five percent romance novels or uh, you know, sort of suspense uh, fiction books. But I wish they would send some good classics. Send some Shakespeare. I'll tell you, the troops will read them. What about music? Is there a particular piece of music that strikes a chord uh, 
provides a specific memory from your last visit? Let's say Moonlight Sonata. You know, it's that piano, it's that real melancholic piano, very calming. Some days I'd be so tired after doing missions, like going out and covering stuff, I would just, I could fall asleep anytime. I could even have 10 cups of coffee. I mean, usually coffee, I can't sleep because of it. Um, but some nights I had to kind of, you know, I, I, I started not being able to turn the light off at the beginning before I fell asleep. Usually I just turn the light off, go to sleep. But some bad days I had left the light on and I would just lie in bed, relax, play some music. It took some time. I listened, like I said, Eleni Karendru, really fantastic musician, very beautiful music. Uh, I think she's done a lot of soundtracks for a Theo, and I can never say his last name, Njopolis. He's a Greek filmmaker, actually. Um, but really fantastic musician, actually. What is the looking back now on this? I, I'm assuming, Louis, that you don't really have time to edit your work. You must take so many pictures. Do you have to force yourself not to review your work during that period? Wait until you return home? Well, it's a little bit of both. Uh, the problem, again, I did a lot of medevac, so I would turn my computer on, get a call, and I'd have to, like, turn my computer off, whereas I should be, like, running to the helicopter. Because that's, it, it's, a medevac is, like, emergency frontline helicopter ambulance. So, uh, and I, I, turn the computer on, turn, turn the computer off. I mean, sometimes I would go without showering for, like, two weeks. I was terrified of going to take a shower because I was going to get a call halfway in the shower. Editing? I'm doing a lot of editing now. Um, I've decided to take a little bit of a break from editing it because 
there's some really tough stuff to look at. Um, you know, I can look at photos, and it, it doesn't shock me where I'm running with my my hands wrapped on my head or anything, or covering my face, or you know, I can handle it. But th- there are photos I can look at, and I can still smell what's in that helicopter. I can still hear the sounds, the screams in that helicopter. You know, uh, I remember the first time I got blood on my combat boots in the helicopter. It, it kind of dries. And turns into this dark brown, dark blackish stain after a while. And all the medics, the people who worked in the back of the helicopter, had those stains in their boots. And I, I'd been in Canada for almost six months, and I was flying to Dubai. And I thought, hey, I'll take a, a day off, try and decompress. I have some friends in Dubai, and my running shoes have pretty much fallen apart. So the only shoes I had, because there was none, no shoes to buy in Canada Airfield, were my combat boots. So I'm out in a bar with my combat boots, and they just look dirty. But I know when I looked down at my boots, and I kept looking down, those are blood stains. So I'm trying to take a break from things that remind me of that. And uh, when I do edit, you know, I, I edit for about half an hour. I do it early in the day. And I usually plan some running or some yoga after it. Listen to some nice music, you know. Don't watch any sad or war movies, you know. Sort of get it done and then sort of go do stuff that's positive. What are your, what are your messages for the future to people listening to this program we certainly draw some dark images of your time in Afghanistan. But what do you come away that fills you with um, an admiration for those serving in Afghanistan, uh, the importance of remembering them, remembering them when they return back to this country? And are you yourself now clearly going through a massive period of decompression still feel confident about humanity confident about where we're going in this world today well i would say this i'm definitely going through some bumpy a bit of a bumpy ride it's uh it's expected and it's natural and as long as i focus on it being that i'm not gonna let it overcome me i'm leading a pretty healthy lifestyle and i think i'm on track now I'm over the worst of it. In terms of those serving over there, if you know anyone who's serving over there, even if they're civilians, because there's a lot of State Department people, there's you know, there's more than just the soldiers, but if you know a soldier or a Marine, uh, Air Force, anyone who's over there seeing frontline combat, when they come home, just give them a big hug and give them as many hugs as they want. Because really, they can never explain, no journalist can ever explain, no anything we have can ever explain or make you feel what they've just experienced just let them feel like they're home again it's going to take some time but let them feel like they're home again and i think i think that's probably the, the only thing they'd ask for and with that louis palu that ends our program today it's been an enormous privilege spending this time with you yet again and i'm certainly looking forward to spending some time with you coming up in los angeles when we'll be doing some filming together i do wish you well until i see you very soon and thank you again for appearing with me on in discussion thank you david and to our listeners today i hope that you were inspired and enjoyed this program on in discussion you can gain information on this and any other program in the series at davidgibbons.org meanwhile wherever you are in this world good morning good afternoon and good evening
In Discussion with David Gibbons is sponsored in part by Bowman Global Change. Specializing in helping companies reduce their carbon emissions, Bowman Global Change applies real science to real business practices to produce results. From designing green programs to one-on-one training to helping set up green action teams in your business, Bowman Global Change translates complex science in practical ways that everyone can understand and use. For more information or to discover how Bowman Global Change can help your organization, visit bowmanglobalchange.com. 